God has a plan. He has a plan for you and for me. That plan includes loving Him and loving others. But for all of us, it's so easy to run away from God's plan, to avoid it completely. We get sucked into a life full of selfishness, pride, and rebellion. We focus on ourselves and what we want and what we think is best. But God is always in pursuit of us. God reaches out to us and offers us not a rejection, but an embrace. Not abandonment, but a welcome. This is the story of Jonah and God's relentless mercy. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Northridge Church. My name's Aaron Hickson. I am our Henrietta campus pastor, and we're glad you're joining us from wherever you're joining us in the Rochester area or online. Thanks for being part of week three of our series, Relentless Mercy, where we are walking through the book of Jonah one chapter at a time. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you want to Jonah chapter three. It'll be on page 754 if you're using one of our Bibles. Well, if you've been here the last few weeks and you're getting a little annoyed with how depressing this story can be, this is a good week because this week is all rainbows and unicorns, okay? This is the high point of Jonah's career. And one of our goals, of course, is to kind of pull this story from the grasp of your Sunday school teacher and maybe from VeggieTales and help you understand if you grew up in church that this is a story that has real significant meaning for us as adults for our everyday lives. And, you know, Jonah, he's in the high point of his career in this chapter, okay? And I want you to actually take a second and think about what would be the high point of your chosen profession, okay? What, like, how, what's the best it could be? And I'm not talking about a raise. I'm not talking about a promotion. I'm talking about as good as it gets in your chosen career field. So if you're a musician, I'm not talking about winning a Grammy. I'm talking about becoming the preeminent voice of entertainment, all right? You become Beyonce. You become the Beatles, right? You're, you're a household name. Or if you're, uh, you know, in the medical field, I'm not talking about becoming a surgeon. I'm talking about curing cancer and having the cure named after you, okay? The best it gets in your profession. Think about that. And that is this moment in Jonah's career, okay? But we're going to find out his reaction might not be what we would expect. So let's jump in to Jonah chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at some historical background kind of to remind us of where we've been. The first thing is this, that Jonah was written by a prophet about a prophet. We've said this every week. Prophets were people who were normally, they preached God's message to God's people. But for Jonah, his life is the sermon. His main job wasn't preaching. It was writing an autobiography that included all of his mistakes along the way. So we're supposed to kind of be reading and mocking him as we go and then go, oh shoot, I think I do that too. That's kind of the intention of this. So there's another theme we need to keep in mind, and that is that God is working on and through Jonah throughout this story. And this chapter, chapter three, God is finally gonna be working through Jonah in a way that you might actually expect God to use a prophet. So this is gonna be a good moment. Um, And let's review the action up to this point. Again, we're just setting the context here. In chapter one, we discover that Jonah runs and God pursues. Jonah runs and God pursues. God asked Jonah to do something that he did not want to do at all. So he tries to run from God. God sends a storm and Jonah ends up getting tossed out of a sinking ship into the water in order to calm the storm. Oddly enough, that works. (laughs) And we left Jonah in chapter one as he's sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea to his death. That was the end of chapter one. 
Chapter two, we found that God disciplines and Jonah repents, kinda, all right? Jonah, we left him sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, but God intervenes. He sends a fish to swallow Jonah, which saves him from dying. And Jonah prays a prayer of repentance from inside of that fish. But it's a prayer that we should ultimately probably be a little suspicious of because Jonah doesn't seem to really fully change his attitude, as we'll find out here in a minute. Um, And that's where we left Jonah last week, was praying in the belly of a fish. And this week, let me just give you a quick summary of what we're going to see in chapter 3. And that is that Jonah preaches and God forgives. Jonah preaches and God forgives. That's kind of the synopsis of the main point of the action in this part of the story. But before we get to that, I just want to say this. Let's ask the question, how did we get here in the first place? Like, why did Jonah freak out so badly at the beginning of this story? What was so crazy about God's request for him to preach to the Assyrians that Jonah would rather be tossed into the ocean and swallowed by a fish than go and obey? What, what is the deal here? So let's zoom out and answer that question because it'll be super important for what we talk about for the rest of today. Um, as we, you know, at the beginning of the story, God told Jonah to go preach a life-saving message to the people who lived in the city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was very likely the capital of Assyria at that time. And if you like maps, you can think about God asking Jonah to travel from modern-day Israel to modern-day Iraq. That's what that journey might have looked like. But who were these Assyrians? The Assyrians, they were an ancient superpower. And on top of being an ancient superpower, they were also super bad. Like certifiably some of the most cruel and merciless people of the ancient world. Uh, Everything we can gather from historical sources indicates that most scholars would say they were some of the most vicious people to ever control the ancient world. And the reason we know that is because they loved bragging about it. So they left a lot of evidence behind of what they did. We have evidence of their cruelty. They were masters at conquering, intimidating, and humiliating. One of their favorite things was to capture enemy soldiers during the midst of a siege or a conquest and then skin them alive in front of their fellow troops as a means of intimidation. We actually know that they did that to certain Israelite troops, again, through some of the evidence they left behind. These guys were bad. And nobody in the ancient world was excited to have to be anywhere near the Assyrian Empire. So unsurprisingly, Jonah, in his small country of Israel, doesn't like them. And no one in Israel would have liked them. And the fact is, the crazy thing is, I guess, that 30 years after the book of Jonah was written, God would use these same bad dudes, these Assyrians, to destroy Israel and bring them into captivity. Because Israel had been rebellious and God had promised them that if they didn't shape up, that he was going to remove them forcibly from their land and they would be taken captive. And these are the guys that God uses to do that. It's called, if you grew up in church or you're a Bible nerd, you might have heard of the Assyrian captivity. That's what that is. So get this. There were most certainly Israelites who were reading the book of Jonah for the very first time in Assyria under the captivity and rule of their cruel Assyrian um, captors. So um, imagine that. Every Israelite reading this story would be asking in the back of their minds, why them? Like, why in the world would God want Jonah to preach to these people? It, it would be a book, like a book, maybe for us, about a preacher who was called to minister to the leader of Al-Qaeda two days after September 11th, 2001. Our country was angry. We hated them. 
And that's exactly how the Israelites would have felt, except worse, because at least Al-Qaeda didn't win the war. Assyria did. And so imagine the hatred and the bitterness that we would have toward Al-Qaeda if they had taken over the United States. And that should sort of set the context for how much they hated the Assyrians. And remember that next week, the intensity of that feeling, when we're all tempted to judge Jonah next week. Because it's going to be important for us to remember that. But that's what Jonah has been commanded to do, is preach to these people that ultimately he hates. But he's not interested in telling them about God's mercy, which really shouldn't be surprising. And it seems hard to blame him. So he runs, and he ends up in a fish's belly, which is where we left him last week. So let's see what happens next as we understand more of this context. I hope it'll be a little less boring from here on out. Take a deep breath. We'll make it together. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We're jumping right into the good stuff here. Fish and vomit. I don't know. Neither of those smell very good. I can't imagine fish vomit is a good combination. Um, but I will say, I kind of wish we had a little more detail here because I would love to know like how far offshore the fish was. We could think about like launch angle and trajectory. Like, <laughs> is that just me? Because I'm curious about that. Uh, that might just be me. But this, this chapter opens with Jonah getting a really disgusting opportunity at a second chance. And I think it's important for us to say right, right away that the most important thing to see about this section of the story is that it starts with God being merciful. He's being merciful, in this case, toward Jonah. This is not the last time he's going to be merciful in this chapter. But last week we said that God is thorough in his discipline. <clears throat> and that is true. But this week we're going to have to notice that God is liberal in his mercy. God's thorough in his discipline, but God is also liberal in his mercy. And those two statements work in tandem. You have to keep them both in mind. And God never stops liberally showing Jonah mercy. And at this point in the story, he's ready to utilize him in a big way. So let's check it out. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this is what God says to him. He says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So we have an eerily familiar opening to this story. If you look back, it's the exact same thing that happened in chapter 1, verse 1, and you're supposed to notice that. We're supposed to catch that. It's as if God is trying to say like, okay, okay, shake it off. Let's try this again. Here we go. Let's, let's give this a shot. This is God's mercy at play, giving Jonah a second chance. But honestly, if you don't know this story, we don't know how Jonah's going to respond. If we were to stop right here, obviously God is giving him another chance, but Maybe he'll run again in the opposite direction. I mean, maybe he'll get smart this time and run by land with like a camel rather than oversea. But who knows? Maybe he'll run. We don't know what he's going to do. Let's see. Let's keep reading. Drum roll. Let's find out how Jonah reacts to his second chance. Jonah chapter 3 verse 3, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Jonah, congratulations, buddy. You did it. You obeyed. Isn't that cool? I mean, not really, right? <laughs> because you shouldn't, you should be able to assume that the prophet would obey. But obviously, we already know with Jonah, you can't assume that about him. And the sad thing is, we are three chapters, 28 verses into this story. We're essentially at square one. 
He is just now doing what God has asked him to do, and we're finally making some progress. And it's at this point that Jonah has made the choice to obey. And that kicks off a multiple-week journey on foot to Nineveh to obey God's command, to preach to a city full of people that he hates. So let's see what happens next. Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. We're going to start with the second half of that verse. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So that's kind of how we get started here. And that's a bit interesting. From, from what we can tell of archaeology, um, the city of Nineveh was probably not so large that it took three days to walk through the city proper. So we're thinking this more references kind of like the greater Nineveh area. Like if you're thinking about Rochester, Greece, I mean, Greece, Henrietta, Arondacoit, Webster, we call that Rochester. It's really the greater Rochester area. You get the point. It's kind of the, the greater um, Nineveh area. And he gets there. He's, he arrives at the city. He starts doing his thing. And he gets a third of the way into doing his job. And we're maybe getting a hint here that Jonah's heart might not be in this. <laughs> his sermon to me seems a little bit lame. And it's not just because my sermons tend to go long. Um, this sentence is, I mean, this sermon is one sentence long. And it's kind of missing something. I'm trying to think what it is. Um, oh yeah, it doesn't mention God. That seems important to me. Like, why aren't you including that? How effective are we anticipating this sermon is going to be? This is a cruel and ruthless empire. And one third of one of its cities gets a one sentence sermon. Come on. Like, this is like the guy, we've all seen him outside of the Red Wings game who's always standing there yelling with a megaphone. Like, do we ever see that working? No, that's not going to work. So what are the odds that a Jewish prophet going into enemy territory, giving an offensive message that's extremely brief, what do we think, what do we think is going to happen? What's supposed to happen here? How do we think these people who hate his country and don't even believe in his God are going to respond? Especially when you throw in the fact that if you're tracking with the story of Jonah, the professional God follower needs God to tell him directly, multiple times, and include miracles before he obeys. What are we supposed to expect from these pagans? How effective do we think this one-sentence sermon is going to be? Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, what does it say? The Ninevites believed God. What? It worked? What is happening? How? No, what is, this is not supposed to work. What is going on here? This is, not only does it work, Jonah's sermon like shatters all sermon records of all time. Let's look at what happens. Jonah chapter three, verse five, reading on, it says, they believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth, which is just a way to like show humility. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and took off his royal robes and covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation in Nineveh that he issued. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. What is happening? Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. 
All of those details are just supposed to be this fast-paced montage describing something that seems completely impossible. They didn't just repent. Everybody, including the king, gets on board with this. The revival is so strong, people, that animals are getting saved. I mean, this is the kind of revival that preachers dream about. Are you kidding me? I'm convinced that this is the most pervasive revival story in all the Bible. I only say that because I cannot think of another example where cows get saved. It's crazy. Every Israelite who's reading this story back in the day would be sitting there in disbelief with their jaw on the floor. This is ridiculous. Think of the contrast. These pagans listen to God's word way better than the prophet does. And by the end of verse 9, every original reader would be staring blankly forward saying, what just happened? In fact, this is actually kind of cool. I hacked a couple of ancient Israelite Twitter accounts, and this was a trending hashtag for a little while. Um, You can go ahead and check it out. Um, Mind blown. Everybody is freaking out about this. It 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 kind of broke the internet for a minute. They would have no framework for this. I'm serious. And Jonah, he's got to be freaking out too. He's never had a sermon this good before. This is crazy. Look what happens next in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So God forgives them. He holds off on his punishment. The same God who put his prophet through the ringer for his disobedience holds off punishment for a group of pagans who are willing to repent and obey. This would have been a stunning, shocking moment. And if you were to dig kind of into some of the historical background of this, which we can guess from what scholars are, have, have uncovered, there had been some interesting stuff going on in Assyria during this time. Um, first of all, their own religious leaders had been doing some prediction of some kind of an apocalyptic event might be coming. There also had been a lunar eclipse, which usually freaked out people in the ancient world. And then third of all, the Babylonian empire was starting to kind of creep into Assyria. The Babylonians are the people who would eventually take over Assyria. And so the point is, there's actually some historical evidence that God was kind of working behind the scenes to set this city up with a sense of kind of doom and gloom that would prepare them for the revival that ultimately takes place. So God does something through Jonah that he was not expecting, and this is an insane moment in the story. It is no doubt certifiably the climax of Jonah's career. I mean, he's a prophet, right? If he's smart, he, his whole deal is bringing God's message to people, and he just brought God's message to the worst people on the planet, and they all listened to him. If he was thinking, he definitely should have just written a book, left out the part where he ran from God, and then just sit back and live off off all of the book sales. They would have put this guy's face on cereal boxes. He is the goat of prophets right now. Nobody is better than Jonah if it just stops right here. And it would be easy to assume that it does, that the story stops here. The preacher brings the message, the people respond, and there was much rejoicing. But that's not the end. There's a whole nother chapter, and I will tell you, it has some stuff in it that you are not supposed to be expecting, and that is a story for next week. 
But I think there are a few lessons from this chapter, chapter 3, that some of the original readers, they would have definitely captured, and we need to make sure that we don't miss them, all right? So the first lesson is this, and that is that God is capable of giving more mercy than you can imagine. God is capable of giving more mercy than you can imagine. And I think it's so unavoidable to the original audience, and we have to catch it too, especially when you put it in contrast with the last chapter. Last week, God was so thorough in his discipline with Jonah. He puts him through the ringer, nearly to the point of being described as excessive if you wanted to go there. And, and, yeah, and when it comes to our lives, sometimes I think we have to realize that God is more thorough in his discipline than sometimes we think is necessary. But simultaneously, we have to know that God is more liberal with his forgiveness than we think is prudent. I mean, these Assyrians, they are the worst people you can imagine. And the effect was intended to have the Israelites saying as they're reading this, like, really, God? Are you sure you want to forgive them? Doesn't it kind of seem like you're going liberal here? Like you're going soft. And I want us to imagine for a second, imagine a room full of people of the opposite political party as you. And imagine them all in a room enacting and pushing forward policies that you find repulsive and aggravating and disgusting and immoral and terrible. And they're pushing them forward with everything that they have. And they're just working at these things that make you feel so angry. And somebody shows up into that room, preaches a one-sentence sermon, and they all claim to have changed their hearts on the spot. What would your response be? Mine might be like, yeah, okay, forgiveness. <laughs> I mean, depends on how you define it, you know. That would be my response, right? Well, our God's, that's not God's response in this moment. That's not, God doesn't shy away from his forgiveness. He doesn't undo his mercy despite the deep evil of these people. I think it's vital that we catch what would have been unavoidable to the original readers, and that is this, that you can never assume to know the boundaries of God's forgiveness. Never assume to know the boundaries of God's forgiveness. Our God's grace and mercy go way beyond what we can even fathom would be prudent or reasonable or helpful or wise. And if you're here today and the example I just gave of the political party makes you squirm a little bit, it makes you cringe, let me tell you something. First of all, I'm with you. And second of all, we have a lot to learn about the depth and the breadth and the height of the mercy of our incredible God. If you ever get to a place where you can draw nice, neat boxes around what God's love and his grace could look like, I'm guessing you haven't drawn the boxes big enough. And I'm not saying there aren't standards or that God's word isn't clear. Of course it is. But I'm saying that if you've come to a place where you can only imagine grace being extended in a nice, clean, linear format without any mess or any learning curves, or if you get to a place where you can look around at the people who are included in the family of God and say like, yeah, I'm comfortable with everyone who's here, you might not understand all of whom, all of the people whom God has graciously forgiven. And man, I will say, I want to say a lot more about that, but we're going to leave that for next week for Drew, and he can nail that point home because we've got lots to cover on that next week. We've got to move on. What's the next point? The next point we have to know is that this story begins and ends with mercy. This story begins and ends with mercy. We cannot miss this. 
At every major juncture of the story, God is pouring out his mercy. If you look at Jonah 1.17, it says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. God could have let him drown. He doesn't. He provides a fish. He shows mercy. And then chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah could have died in that fish. He doesn't. God gives him a second chance. He shows him mercy. And then we get the final moment to where we got today, Jonah 3.10. Then God saw what they did and they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The story begins with mercy toward Jonah and it ends with mercy coming through Jonah to the people of Nineveh. So don't miss this. The message of mercy that Jonah is preaching is the message that Jonah himself received from God. The grace that Jonah is proclaiming to these pagans is the same grace that Jonah has been swimming in. Our lives must be no different than this. The love that we so desperately want other people to accept is the love that we so desperately need. The grace that we're so, the gospel that we so desperately want to share with other people so that they'll come to know Jesus, it is the same gospel that we desperately need every day ourselves. We cannot miss that point. Jonah's preaching is covered in mercy. First, he is treated mercifully, and then he gives that merciful message of God to others. The third lesson I think we need to catch from this story, and what we, is amazing from what we know of the history of Israel, is this that God can use whoever he wants. He can use whoever he wants. Not to break from the tone too much, I know some of you are squirming, I know it's supposed to be whomever, but it sounded too pretentious, okay. (laughs) When God chose to work through people, when he does that, he is not limited to people who are godly, or smart, or helpful. He's not even limited to people who are willing. (laughs) Let's talk about this story. He uses Jonah. That should be a shocker. (laughs) This guy has nothing going for him, given his track record. Yet through him, God creates this huge spiritual moment. But then there's also something else going on from history that we have to understand. God also uses Assyria. And obviously in this story, things are going pretty well in Assyria. The king, the capital, they're all turning to God. But time reveals that this is actually much more of a temporary revival. Whether some people in the city were faking their repentance or whether this generation just failed to pass on faith to the next one, we don't know for sure. But we do know that 30 years after this incident, they are back to their cruel ways and God utilizes that cruelty to punish the Israelites. So check out how a different prophet, who was much more obedient, describes the people of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. It says this, The Assyrian, so it's describing the Assyrians, This is God speaking. He says, they are the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him, that's Assyria, against a godless nation, that's Israel. I dispatch Assyria against a people who anger me to seize loot and to snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. God is talking about using Assyria like a baseball bat, like a club to destroy Israel. But then Assyria is going to end up taking credit for their victory over Israel and thinking that they're awesome and powerful. And so God says in the end, he's going to destroy them too. A couple verses later, Isaiah 10, 12, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and for the haughty look in his eyes. And then God just goes off on Assyria. Look at this, Isaiah 10, 15. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? 
No. <laughs> or the saw boast against the person who uses it? That's ridiculous. As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not made of wood. God is like, for real? You are just a tool. Who do you think is in charge, the axe or the person swinging the axe? Come on, bro. He's like, dude, you are made of wood. You are a baseball bat. You are nothing. You are a tool in my hands. He's literally using Assyria to accomplish his purposes in the world. And once he's done with them, 70 years later, another world empire that he is utilizing to accomplish his purposes, Babylon, will come and wipe the Assyrians off the map. God will accomplish his purposes, and he will do it with whomever he'd like. He uses disobedient prophets, pagan kingdoms, and thankfully, imperfect churches to do his will. We are tools in his hands, and we're entirely dependent on him. So let me close with these final thoughts. What God does through Jonah is ultimately just a setup. I think we have to recognize that the point of this story is not the revival that takes place. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's cool, but I do not think that that's the main point of today's sermon or this part of the story. This is a story about God's work inside of Jonah's heart. And so the whole mission to Nineveh and the mercy that God showed to these Assyrians was ultimately something that God did to poke at Jonah's broken heart and see how he would react a test to determine the status of Jonah's growth. And let me tell you, it's not pretty. God's work after this chapter, it's done in Nineveh, but it wasn't done in Jonah. God's work was done in Nineveh, but it was not done in Jonah. And I'll admit, most Sunday school versions of this story, they end here. They end with Jonah on top of the world, with a revival unfolding in the capital city of the enemy. But God has a much more profound end to this story for us to learn from. God was not done refining his prophet, and I'm convinced that God isn't done with our hearts either. We are on a lifelong journey of peeling back the layers of sin and rebellion and prejudice and resistance only to find that there's even more than we knew was there. And God is orchestrating every circumstance of our lives as ultimately a test to poke and to peel back and to find that we have more that we need to learn. And he's doing this over and over again to orchestrate every single circumstance to ultimately teach us to believe a message that we have such a hard time believing. And the message is this, you will never find the end of God's mercy. You cannot out find the end of his grace as much as we oversell it and we try to exaggerate it and we try to make it seem enormous. We haven't yet scratched the surface of what God's mercy is capable of. And so while God's mercy is on display in this story, I know that we can see it as he is merciful toward these people, the Assyrians. But I hope that we see it even more on display in the heart of a rebellious prophet. A prophet who looks and talks and acts a lot like you and a lot like me. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy toward us. A relentless mercy that calls us back to you over and over to receive again the mercy that we need to come where your arms are open wide, where your forgiveness has cleansed us from all of our sins so that we can remember your love toward us and then ultimately spread that love and mercy to others. In Jesus' name, amen.